Hey everybody, welcome to episode three of Call Your Monster. I'm Adam. I am a Jewish writer living in Los Angeles who likes spooky things. Wow, what a coincidence. My name is Jen. I'm also a Jewish writer. I also live in Los Angeles and I also dabble in spooky things. I would say you do more than dabble. You have a Medusa <laughs> sticker on and a Salem sticker and a Ouija board sticker and a black cat sticker and a regular cat, which also still feels spooky. All on your laptop. I do. And I also, this is not very Jewish of me, but I have a ghost tattooed on my ankle. So we're going to be talking about Shadim, which you might know about, and werewolves, which you probably do know about in Judaism. So let's get into the first thing first. So Shadim, which get their name from possibly the Akkadian word Shedu, which means spirit beings, or the Mesopotamian word, which is also Shedu, which refers to protective spirits. It could also be from the Hebrew word of Shin, Vav, and Dalet, or Shud, meaning acting with violence. It is possible that all three of those are related. So what are Shadim? They're these shape-shifting demons, but also it's important to note in Judaism that uh, demons aren't fundamentally malicious. Usually they were sort of, they were seen as the gods of foreigners, so like pagan gods, which could also contribute to the fact that not many people are sure what they look like. Uh, There's a lot of conflicting reports. There's one very consistent thing, which I'll get into in a minute. But yeah, I think it's a lot of times they're seen as the gods of foreigners. So they're associated a lot with sacrifices, which feels vaguely, not necessarily xenophobic, but not not xenophobic. Um, (laughs) Look, we weren't perfect. (laughs) So, apart from, you know, being seen as the gods of foreigners, where do they come from? So there are four main ideas of how Shadim came to be. One is that they're descended from the serpent in the Garden of Eden, who went from having legs and possibly wings to having neither of those, so also shapeshifty. Another is the idea that uh, Lilith, who in some interpretations was Adam's first wife, love Lilith, we'll get back to her later down the line. She's my girl. everybody's girl um and she's her own girl more most importantly and why people don't like her (laughs) so uh there's the idea that lilith and adam had some kids before he wound up leaving her and settling down with eve so lilith and adam's kids are possibly the shadim there's also the idea that uh they were just some unfinished people because god didn't finish making them before the sabbath he was like ah well i'm going to show that you know even when you're working when you hit the sabbath the job is done no matter what. So here are some half people. Um, So they have souls, but sort of misshapen bodies or don't even have bodies. Or they're much like estries. They're born of the wreckage of people from the Tower of Babel. So some say that they're souls who lack bodies, which sort of makes them similar to Islamic jinn. Um, Others say that they have wings or they have the ability to change shape or take the form of other people, which makes them really hard to identify. But I think it's the Talmud. But in one one story, uh, the Shedim, or the Shed, Asmodeus took the form of Solomon once and acted as King Solomon for like a hot minute there. It's interesting that, in a way, Shedim are sort of the opposite of golems because they have souls, but they don't have bodies. That's true. Oh man, if only we could get the two of them together, they could just... Be a human? Oh my god, is that Pinocchio? Oh, is it? Yeah, I guess so, right? So one thing that is consistent, though, in every single description of Shadim is the fact that they have chicken feet uh, or the feet of a fowl. So maybe that's a chicken. Maybe that's, you know, a large goose. 
uh, but no matter what form they take, that doesn't change, which is also why when Asmodeus took the form of Solomon, he always wore shoes, and they figured out that it wasn't Solomon when they went to where all of his concubines lived and were like, hey, what do his feet look like? And they're like, we have never seen his feet, my dude. And they were like, ah, Jacques. One other thing uh, that I should talk about, it isn't necessarily what they look like, but in terms of their personality traits, uh, they're kind of chaotic neutral. If you don't bother them, they're not going to bother you. You know, just don't go messing with them. And a lot of this is sort of covered in all of the different literature that discusses them, which includes the Tanakh, but it's also in the Zohar and the Sefer Hasidim, which is the book that we talked about back in the Estries, which is written by a lot of pietists in the middle of Germany in the 13th century. Uh, and they're also discussed in the Talmud. So should you ever come across a Shadim, first of all, don't summon them. But if, you know, a non-Jew, if a Gentile, if a Goyesha has summoned uh, a Shed or a Shud or Shadim, you are allowed to interact with that one. You just can't summon one yourself. Also make sure that you don't seal all of the windows in your house because that can trap them in your house, which is also not great because they don't like being confined to a cage. Who, who does, honestly? It's true. I, uh, as much as I love usually existing in a den of darkness, I also do want a door. But yeah, so some people are associated with making sacrifices to them, but those are sinful people who will sacrifice their daughters. Always a daughter. So all of this idea of the concept of sacrificing being tied to pagan gods and Shadim sort of ties into that whole, like, you know, xenophobia that the Jews of the day could have been accused of. There's also a body swap situation, like with Solomon, but it's also said in the Zohar that the Shechninah, which is a house of Jewish divinity, hid Esther from Ahasuerus uh, before they were wed and let her be reunited with Mordecai, who was her uncle, cousin, husband, still remains unclear in many different interpretations. All of the above. <laughs> yeah, every of the, oh God. But yeah, so the Shechninah used a should to replace Esther temporarily. Um, so the, you know, the lesson learned from that is uh, talk to your fiancés before you marry them, because otherwise you would never know if they have been swapped with a shade. Shade, that's the word. Shade. But if you're not sure if your bestie or your fiancé has been swapped with a shade, then you should cover the floor with flour and see if they make chicken scratch, at least according to the Talmud. So that's a good way to tell if you are being body swapped. So look for the feet or throw some flour so that that can point out the feet. Look to the feet. That's the rule of the shade. <laughs> and then, so in terms of other shape-shifting things uh, that exist in Jewish mythology, let's talk a little bit about werewolves who, much like the estries, are all lady folk. Uh, werewolves are shapeshifted men folk. Um, weirdly enough, werewolf bar mitzvah was not the first association with Jews and werewolves. Uh, they're actually discussed right up there in Genesis in two different ways. So first, when we're talking about the uh, whole story of creation, it is said in Genesis that God created, or man was created in God's image. But there's this thing in the study of Torah uh, where you sort of look for hidden messages in the Torah's text, and one of the ways that they do that is uh, by using different lettering systems in order to interpret what could possibly be another meaning. One of these lettering systems is the album, which is a letter replacement thing, where you take all of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, you split them into two groups, and the first letter of each group corresponds with each other. So Aleph corresponds to Lamed, Bet corresponds to Mem, and then you go and you replace all of the letters of a passage with its corresponding part. Because Jews just make everything more complicated. Who could possibly <laughs> overthink like the Jews? 
Uh, the answer is no one. We've, we've had the text enough that we're just sort of sitting there finding new ways to interpret it. But when you when you apply the album lettering system to the phrase, man was created in the image of God, it changes the image to wolf. So uh, man was created in the wolf of God, which sort of goes into this idea of like a wolf not being able to change back until it has consumed the flesh of a person and man being able to be transformed into a wolf. There is also another mention of werewolves in Genesis, which is Jacob's deathbed confessional when he's talking about each of his sons and their strengths and their weaknesses and, you know, how they should proceed forward. He just straight up says Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, which, you know, if you want to take the metaphor approach, that's fine. But like, let's get literal with it, which is exactly what this 12th century Hasidic rabbi, Rabbeinu Ephraim, said is like, this is a literal translation. He is a wolf. So he said that the the direct translation of Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, he'll devour his enemies in the morning and he'll split the spoils at night. That is an indication of him being just a straight up werewolf. You know, and there's kind of some text that goes along with that, that ties into that. Uh, So his mother died in childbirth and she said that this is the son of my affliction as she's on her way out. Um, And it is interpreted by some that he actually ate his mother as he was born. uh, And... You know, some rabbis have said that you can recognize a werewolf because they're born with teeth as if to consume the world. So if he was born with teeth, then he could have just straight up eaten his way out of his mother like a horrifying Pac-Man. Like, doesn't that happen in one of the Twilight movies? Stephanie Meyer just ripping off Jewish folklore. (laughs) Wow. Will the cultural appropriation ever stop? (laughs) I'm embarrassed that I know that. (laughs) Getting back to it, when we're talking about werewolves, which we can't not talk about Stephanie Myers. um, (laughs) So the wolf part of the person in question, uh, much like the French version of a werewolf called the loup-garou. So the wolf in question lives between the shoulder blades and will emerge feet first in a transformation, but they will retain their human eyes, which is another way to identify a werewolf. There's also another famous werewolf in the realm of Judaism, which is Nebuchadnezzar II. So in the book of Daniel, Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar, who's this Babylonian king, that his dreams were a sign of God wanting him to repent for his pride. Nebuchadnezzar was like, nope, I'm pretty great, and I'm going to celebrate that. When he doesn't do that, God smites him with lycanthropy, and he's driven out of his city, and he's a werewolf. <laughs> he's just a werewolf for seven years. Then he finally repents. It's like, all right, I guess Daniel's God is my God and his return to his previous state and his former glory, but with a little bit less, uh, you know, douchiness. This sort of goes with the idea that there are two different types of werewolves in Jewish mythology. There's Benjamin, who was born into it, and Nebuchadnezzar, who was made one by God. So this also kind of ties into the idea that there isn't actually a cure for them. Uh, You know, if you are a werewolf as ordained by God, God can also undo it, I guess, omnipotence. But there isn't really a cure for the born into it version of being a werewolf. And it doesn't seem like there is, like, bite another werewolf and you become another werewolf. It's either genetic or deific. Deetic? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, with Benjamin, it's said that his affliction was kept in check by a physician. So, uh, you know, he wasn't cured, but he was kept in check by a doctor, which also could be why Jews love having a doctor in the family. <laughs> If you aren't trying to cure them and just protect yourself from them, they are susceptible to firebrands, so burning wood, uh, which is something that they would do in the temple. They would spread ash all over the floor, uh, and the temple, interestingly enough, was in the land of Benjamin. That is supposed to hurt an oncoming wolf. It's also said that the descendants of Benjamin are werewolves as well, which oh. like ties into, I think it was David was a werewolf and Solomon 
uh, like all of these great military leaders uh, across Jewish history were all Benjamin, like from the tribe of Benjamin and therefore possibly from the tribe of werewolves. So also if you want to protect yourself from the werewolves, if you, if you come across a Benjaminite along the way, uh, you can chop off their head. That usually does the trick. Yep. Uh, also a wood chipper, uh, just so long as it's not on the Sabbath. I don't, that's not technical. I just assume that a wood chipper will in fact kill you. Well, wouldn't the fire, uh, you would also think you can't do a fire on the Sabbath. Oh, that's true. So if you if you run into a werewolf on the Sabbath... Try not to. Just, just don't. Don't do it. But I think one of the interesting things to note is that when we go back to the story of Benjamin as a werewolf, uh, one of the major things is that his father actually wasn't worried that he would kill others. It's that others would discover that he is a werewolf and would kill them, which ties into, as we love doing, the concept of Jews as the other, Jews as the monster, and worry that we will be hunted as an other. So there actually is a parable in Judaism, or at least in Hasidic Judaism, about a werewolf. Um, this story is about the founder of Hasidism, Israel ben Eliezer, also known as the Baal Shem Tov. And of course, because this is Judaism, there are many different versions of this story. Interestingly, some actually involve Satan, which feels more Christian than Jewish, actually. And in these versions, Satan is the one who's doing some meddling. But either way, this story takes place in a town in which the surrounding woods are plagued with a werewolf. And this werewolf is threatening the school children. So Baal Shem Tov, being the mensch that he is, takes it upon himself to confront the werewolf, which is at this point grown larger than the forest itself. Somehow the Baal Shem Tov magically enters the body of the werewolf to remove its evil cursed heart. And in this still beating heart, the Baal Shem Tov sees the immense suffering that drove the creature to do such terrible, wicked things. So it's this very empathetic moment, and the Baal Shem Tov basically places his hand on the heart of this werewolf, and it leaves the body of the werewolf to be buried in the earth, subduing, and in some versions of the story, humanely killing the wolf by finding the humanity that's buried deep, deep within it. And I think that speaks a lot to, you know, what we're kind of talking about with Judaism and why we as Jews sort of often gravitate to this story of the werewolf. Yeah, so kind of piggybacking off of all of that, um, I think there has been kind of across history and in media jewish storytellers have sort of historically been drawn to the werewolf myth which is very interesting and it makes sense there is this it's this idea of an innocent person who sort of and i can talk too about in non-jewish you know werewolf lore how somebody becomes a werewolf but it is typically this innocent person who's cursed in some way to transform into a monster due to factors outside of their control so they're painted as a monster they're made into the other they're the object of witch hunts and accusations they adhere to a lunar calendar much like the jews and there is this fear of not only what you do when you're in wolf mode i suppose or wolfing out as they say on wednesday killing others but also there is this fear about you know, what happens when somebody, if somebody finds out you're a werewolf and this fear of being killed. And I think that repositioning of like, we are not victims of the werewolf, the werewolf is the victim of the hunt. 
and forces out of their control, I think that definitely ties into why this is such an appealing story. Totally. This is one that's not, you know, there are a lot of monsters we've talked about where they can be sort of appropriated or they just appear in non-Jewish mythology as a means of sort of embodying anti-Semitic stereotypes. That's not necessarily the case for werewolves. It, instead, it's sort of it makes sense that Jews would sort of gravitate and sympathize with this being, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And of course, you know, this idea of shape-shifting people and lycanthropy is not exclusive to Judaism. Well, and it's also this idea of like, if you are able to transform into a monster, it's the monster in plain sight. So it created this fear state. Mm -hmm. And it's like this hidden identity thing and everybody has to be wary of everybody all the time. And it also ties to that idea of like lizard people being an allegory for mm -hmm. Jews and like the secret cabal of control. Where it is like if there are werewolves, they could be among us at any point controlling us mm -hmm. and live in a fear state. There are Jews everywhere. Not really. There aren't that many of us. Yeah, now I'm kind of jumping around a bit, but there actually were serial killers who were rumored to be werewolves in Europe. Um, there were several people in, quite a few in France, actually. Giles Garnier, the werewolf of Dole, who claimed to sell an ointment that could turn people into wolves. And he also allegedly killed and ate children in his wolf form before being burned at the stake. So are you telling me that I shampoo my hair with, like, yeah. werewolf serum? <laughs> Yeah, it is great for taming that werewolf mane. Um, not the same. <laughs> I am not going to be peddling this information. I don't believe he has any relation to the Garnier of supermarket uh, shampoo. Also, two other French dudes, Pierre Bergot and Michel Verdun, also concocted similar werewolf ointments and confessed to killing children. Is it just an eczema thing? Because that's also Jewish. <laughs> that also tracks, actually. We need these special ointments now. Um, <laughs> also in Germany, it's not just the French. There was a 15th century farmer named Peter, Peter Stubb, Stubb? Stube. Stube. Um, who supposedly spent his nights in wolf form, terrorizing and murdering inhabitants of his town, Bedburg. And he was caught after somebody supposedly saw him turn back from wolf into human, but this was not a case of just like finger finger pointing and baseless accusations. This guy was like, no, I did brutally murder people and ate their remains. And he claimed that he derived his powers from an enchanted belt that allowed him to transform into a wolf. And so he too was sentenced to death. So this idea of shape-shifting humans, that's all to say. It's not exclusive to Judaism. Um, with Shadim and the Shade, you have this idea of these beings, these magical beings that shapeshift and have chicken feet, which is not dissimilar from the Baba Yaga of Russia, who's this badass forest-dwelling witch. She lives in a magical house in the woods, and it, her hut walks through the forest on chicken feet, which is honestly pretty cool. Um, depending on which version of the story you're reading, um, she might help travelers, or she might imprison people and eat children. It really just depends. She's got a lot of range. <laughs> I like her. <laughs> I'm a fan. She's sometimes depicted as riding through the air in an iron kettle or riding in a mortar and like using a little pestle to get her going. She also, when she's not riding around uh, wreaking havoc, she lives with her sisters who I think are also named Baba Yaga. Um, she's now 
understandably, kind of seen as this symbol of female empowerment and independence. She guards the waters of life, which is kind of cool. Her name may or may not mean Grandmother Witch. She's, you know, sometimes she's depicted as a villain, but she's kind of more of just this trickster entity. Sort of like the Shadim. She's like kind of, I won't say she's neutral, but like she's got some redeeming qualities, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> she's just a cool old lady who lives by her own rules. She's full of contradictions and she can shapeshift. And you know, cause I like to, I like to move around the globe and hit on some non-Western versions of these myths too. Um, a cool, cool one from Japan, the Kitsune. Um, it's this idea, it's actually sort of the inverse of a werewolf. Whereas werewolves are mortal, you know, they're, they're people who are sort of cursed in some way, so they transform into wolves. In Japanese folklore, foxes are sort of seen as, in, in yokai folklore, I should say, they're seen as supernatural creatures that sort of have this innate wisdom and have paranormal abilities so these fox creatures can shapeshift into human form basically it's not so much a cursed human taking on animal characteristics it's this paranormal creature that mimics humans um you also got the wendigo in indigenous american folklore which is a humanoid shape-shifting spirit with this insatiable hunger that preys on human flesh and of course Bringing it back, there's the classic non-Jewish Western werewolf, a la the Wolfman, American Werewolf in London, all of that good stuff, Stephanie Meyer, Twilight, you know. And interestingly enough, actually, the Wolfman, circa 1941, was written by a Jewish refugee from Nazi Germany. So there is this idea, I do love that there's this idea of Jews sort of having an affinity uh, or sympathy, at least, for the werewolf. So it wasn't just the Wolfman uh, that is a piece of werewolf mythology or like part of the the literature written by a Jewish immigrant, but it's also, there's this song, The Werewolves of London, that was written by a guy oh, named Warren yeah. Zevin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, his parents or his grandparents, I think, were Jewish immigrants and he was from Chicago. Uh, but The Werewolves of London, also like very Jewish, and I'm speaking specifically of the line, he was looking for uh, a bite of beef I think it's like beef lo mein or beef chow mein or something like that. And that just, that hunt for really good Chinese food feels fundamentally (laughs) Jewish. Some people too think that in addition to all of this, all this good Jewish stuff, some people think that a lot of what we conceive of as the modern Western werewolf originates uh, back to the epic of Gilgamesh. The titular character Gilgamesh jilts a woman who turned her previous bow into a wolf. There's also, of course, Greek mythology where... Transformation is often a punishment by the gods. Zeus transformed a king and his children into wolves as a punishment, and depending on the version of the myth, it's either for killing Zeus's children or because the king served Zeus the flesh of his own murdered son, which isn't great. Zeus's moral code, ethical code, was questionable. Let's leave it at that. Um, You've also got Nordic folklore. There's a story of this father and son who find magical wolf pelts that allows humans to turn into wolves for 10 days. So in this typical show of father-son bonding, the pair donned these wolf pelts and went on a killing spree in the forest where the dad accidentally attacked his own son. He would have died, but thankfully a magical raven swooped by and gave dad this magical leaf to cure his son. Um, So I think hopefully they learned their lesson. Depending on different versions of this Western werewolf story, the werewolf curse sort of comes from different places. Either it is this innate curse, it is, it's some enchanted object, like the serial killer's mysterious belt that turned him into a werewolf, 
or this wolf pelt. Sometimes a werewolf is bitten or attacked by another werewolf, but in it, it's usually associated with nighttime. It's often associated with the full moon. All in all, the werewolf mythology has been, you know, and shapeshifting in general has been all over the map. And you have all of these different versions of it, but in every single one of them, there is this idea of a lack of trust, right? There's a fundamental, you don't know who your neighbor is, you don't know what they're capable of. Even in Jewish mythology, like, Benjamin was not born in a great way, and he, you know, was innately a werewolf, at least according to some interpretations. Um, And, you know, even as one of the not lost tribes of Israel, there's this idea of, like, a very powerful but also very threatening entity so it feels very much like you know judaism in the same way that we are often seen as the other and we're worried that we're seen as the other we do a lot of that othering ourselves that feels like a nice place to stop for the day tune in next week when we talk about more jewish spookums stay safe out there try to avoid werewolves on the sabbath Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Call Your Monster. If you like what you heard and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe. If you have questions or have monsters that you want us to talk about, you can let us know in the Apple Podcast Rate and Review section or message us on Instagram at callyourmonsterpod, where we'll have a glossary of words we used this episode, as well as some almost funny memes. We'll see you next week.